there's been a return to the harder edged marks of Das Kapital, the Marxist writings that are much more explicitly about capitalism, explicitly about the, the contradiction and tensions between capital and labor. That's Andrew Hartman, professor of history at Illinois State University. Andrew is currently hard at work on a book about Karl Marx. I asked him to come on the podcast because, well, it does seem like the name Marx is kind of in the air right now. It's not just that we've come up to the centenary of the Russian Revolution, I think. People seem really just to want to talk about, or at least to debate once again, the merit of Marx's ideas and the form of economic and cultural analysis that he inaugurated. I'm thinking of the books that have recently come out, like China Mayville's October, which reassesses the October Revolution and wonders if it inevitably led to Stalinism. I'm thinking also of the many articles and essays and periodicals, not just like Jacobin and The Nation, but also the New York Times, reintroducing Marxist concepts into the national debate as a way to assess and critique what is called neoliberalism. This is all evidently exciting for some people, scary for others. Just a few days ago, Brett Stevens wrote a column for the New York Times called Communism Through Rose-Colored Glasses, in which he accuses today's progressives of being, quote, in a permanent and dangerous state of semi-denial about the legacy of communism a century after its birth in Russia. In Jacobin, Duke Law scholar Jed Purdy called Stevens' column, quote, a facepalm pastiche of material the cold, war-minded Wall Street Journal kept in the drawers for slow news days. The fallacy, Purdy says, is egregious. Quote, why has Marxian thought not been discarded with Stalinism? One might as well ask why liberalism is taken seriously on college campuses given what we know about John Stuart Mill's involvement in British imperialism in India, unquote. Andrew Hartman helps us piece through some of these debates. Andrew calls himself a Marxist, and even if he didn't do that, you'd know he's on the left. What's more, he has a knack for being able to talk with people in the center. Andrew's new podcast, Trotsky and the Wild Orchids, features conversations, for instance, between him and his friend and fellow intellectual historian Ray Habersky, who's more of a liberal than a leftist, as he would put it. Perhaps, I think. Andrew and I talk about the current reconsideration of Marx. We also hazard a definition of that beast of a concept, neoliberalism. And Andrew talks about the present state as well as the future of the left, with some consideration given to the promise and perils of political debate on Twitter. To start our conversation, I asked Andrew whether he decided to write his upcoming book on Marx because he felt that there was something about this economic and political moment that called for it. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. Yes, I think we're in the midst, hopefully at the beginning, of a sort of renaissance of Marxist thought, uh, re-readings of Marxism. And as you said, perhaps to me, the most exciting part about this is that um, everyone is returning to the original source. There's um, renewed interest in the original Marx himself, and not just, you know, like some of the, um, you know, more humanistic early Marx pieces, which really came back into circulation in the United States in the 1960s, and which spoke to, you know, um, sort of the existentialism of the era. But there's been a return to, you know, the harder-edged Marx of Das Kapital, 
um, and the Grundrisse, and you know when the the Marxist writings that are much more explicitly about capitalism, explicitly about the the contradictions and tensions between capital and labor. To what do you account this recent reconsideration, not just of the humanistic Marx, as you say, but the hard edge Marx, the Marx of Capital? Well, I hate to get all vulgar about this, but it seems pretty obvious to me that it has everything to do with the economy. Um, the crash in 2008, or the Great Recession, as it's called, and the corresponding um, sort of flickers of social movements that have arisen in response to that, which you might point to, um, say, Occupy Wall Street, which gave us the language of the 1% and the 99%. Um, and then more recently, the surprising success of um, Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries in 2016, a longtime um, socialist running rather successfully against um, Hillary Clinton. And this sort of sparked a resurgence in interest in socialism that many people have sort of taken down the rabbit hole all the way to Marx. Um, and then I think there's a larger sort of intellectual literary culture in New York City and other pl other sort of cosmopolitan places. And that has expanded beyond such sort of hubs of culture, high culture, um, that is reading a lot of sort of Marxist material. Um, and here I'm thinking about um, the rise of a new set of little magazines, Jacobin, N plus one, and the sort of emergence of a rebranding of, say, Descent. Um, these magazines have become incredibly popular, especially Jacobin with its massive online presence. Um, which has spawned activism. It has spawned reading groups. Um, and I, out of all of this, perhaps the most um, surprising, and if you're on the left, exciting thing is the growth of Democratic Socialists of, of America to now over 50,000 members. So there's just something in the air. It seems like in dark times, Trumpian times, it seems like maybe there's some sort of spark on the left and many more people are interested in the le in learning about the leftist tradition, especially young people, it seems to me. And what better excuse than to read Marx, have a Marxist reading group, um, sort of take a class at NYU on Marxist theory. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I have a few questions about that. I mean, it, it is it is interesting, as you say, that there are all of these reading groups, and especially there's a, there's a lot of um, energy behind um, Marxism and a kind of more, uh, I, perhaps you'd say a more stridently class-focused leftism among the young Um but it, you know, it's it's interesting that all these articles about Marx are coming out right now because it is, of course, we're around the time of the centenary of the Russian Revolution. Um, so perhaps for that reason alone, the New York Times has had its Red Century series, which surely many listeners have seen. It's featured writers on the left, like Sarah Leonard, Bhaskar Sankara, and others 
But but I'd say the the reason for the series or the energy behind that series is not just caused, as you're suggesting, it, it isn't just caused by the historical coincidence of the Russian Revolution being a mere 100 years ago. Um, it's also uh, because the left is pushing for a more boldly materialist critique of of what is called neoliberalism. Now, you've mentioned Trumpism, which is perhaps a form or a wing of neoliberalism, though... Um, Though surely the supporter, the sort of grassroots supporters for Trump would, they, they would view themselves as being part of the 99% and having grabbed on to the, um, the rhetoric perhaps of Occupy, which we could try to piece through and talk about. But I'm just wondering right now if you can help me and listeners define neoliberalism, because it is a big term, but surely the new Marxist critique would have its, its sights set on it. So uh, often neoliberalism, right, is equated with Wall Street. It's also been equated with the leadership of both parties. So the Clintons have been called neoliberalism, neoliberals, excuse me, as much as any Wall Street Republican is. Um, and you've, you, you yourself have written about the rise of neoliberalism and its prominence in higher education in America. So this concept is so big that it seems to wrap its arms around global capitalism as well as American ideology and American higher education. So could you help us out here? How do you define <laughs> neoliberalism? Yeah, so it's a it's become somewhat of an a loaded term in many people's eyes, right? Like, oh, the debate has just ended. He or she invoked neoliberalism. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, um, but I actually think that there is a good definition for it and that it has um, uh, it makes sense to talk about it in its history and in its contemporary political usage. I just define it as um, an ideology in which the logic of the market is assumed to be superior to other logics, including the logic of the state. Um, and the reason why um, – it's called neoliberal is because it's, you know, in one way harkens back to the classic liberalism of 18th and century, 19th century sort of English and Scottish thought. Um, but it's sort of ta it's, it's in a new context and it takes, takes it to a new extreme in the sense that, um, there was during the 20th century, there was the, the buildup of these large, um, states that focused on social welfare based on the premise that in the early 20th century, market logic had log largely failed to sort of make people's lives better, in fact, made people's lives a lot worse, and thus the state became the necessary sort of intervention. Um, neoliberalism is reversing that, and it sort of emerges out of the crises of the 1970s and is predicated on the notion that human freedom human liberty, all of the, you know, the good life is, can be had, but not through the mechanism of the state, but rather through the mechanism of the market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this has, um, this isn't just a conservative thing, which is why the term I think has become loaded and why many, um, like let's say centrist Democrats reject the term and consider it a pejorative. And that is because, um, the term does apply. So somebody like the Clintons, I consider neoliberal in the sense that um, that whole wing of the Democratic Party has a long record of sort of chipping away at the power of the state in terms of relative to um, the, the people's welfare. And 
turning over cert, certain mechanisms to the to the market. Um, and, you know, neoliberalism in this sense works well with the other sort of elements of liberalism or, or the left that have long been sought after, like multiculturalism. And that's why um, it's a it's an ideology that transcends conservatism, although I would argue conservatives are much more purely neoliberal. That's interesting. I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm hoping to ask, um, well, I'll just put it to you right now, is would you say that Donald Trump or President Trump is a, is a neoliberal? Um, and I ask because, of course, the energy behind his campaign, the grassroots energy as it was identified by pundits at the time, um, was and is considered populist in a way. And as a kind of populist movement, it took up some of the rhetoric of even Occupy Wall Street being against the uh, 1%. It's just that in the Trumpist formulation, it seems like the 1% is perhaps a coastal or political elite rather than just the people who have all the money. And so it seems like, I guess I'm, I'm just asking your opinion on this, it does seem like uh, Occupy Wall Street did produce a new rhetoric and a new perhaps class consciousness in, um, in American political argument that would bolster the rise of this new kind of leftism that you identify. But it also seemed to give a kind of power to grassroots Trumpism too. And I guess I'm trying to... I'm I'm wondering if you see an irony there and if you would call Trump a pure a pure neoliberal in your terms. Yeah, great. It's it's complex, isn't it? Um because I I sort of halfway thought in the middle of the 2016 primaries when we saw the emergence of Trump um to ultimate victory, and then also when we saw the surprising emergence of Sanders, to me I was thinking, ah, maybe neoliberalism is dead. You're seeing um, candidates in both parties attempt to lay waste to its basic premises. Um, but, you know, I think it's too simple to think of Trump as anti-neoliberal in the sense that, on the one hand, um, he is an entirely sort of like neoliberal person, subject, in the sense that, you know, he's never sort of, he, he ran for president after never having served public office. So he's an entirely sort of private individual who just sort of swoops in and decides, I'm going to be president. I have this, all this right. success in private life. The market has served me well. Let's sort of, um, take all of that success as a private individual and sort of move into the public sphere. And the logic of the market is really sort of always what is informing Trump. Um, but now as president, um, I think it's quite apparent. Um, and however, whatever sort of intentions or motivations we want to give to Trump are beside the point, I think it's quite apparent that he's just continuing what I would consider to attempt to putting closures around the, the public good, the common good. Um, and you can see this with now what he's attempting to do with um, tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations, um, you know, based on the same sort of old time assumption that all of this money, all of this revenue would be best left in the hands of the wealthy because 
the market serves us better than the state. So Trump's a contradiction. His rhetoric, certainly during the campaign, was not the typical neoliberal rhetoric that we were used to hearing. His very personhood, though, I think is neoliberal, and he's ruling like sort of an authoritarian neoliberal. <laughs> um, th- okay, that's that's an interesting formulation. Um, uh, that's I think that's that's useful, I, I, in part because I'm I'm. I'm wondering if just as a kind of thought experiment, if we were to say, and just to swing this back to, um, to the question of, of um, Marxism because, uh, and, and the, the uniqueness perhaps of the left critique and also what some people in the center and on the right perhaps would see as its dangerous aspect. I'm hoping to ask you about that. Even if some people in the center and plenty of people on the right who perhaps have opposed global capitalism, I'm thinking of, say, some of the writers for the American Conservative or some of these folks like Daniel McCarthy, Um, even if they were to agree that neoliberalism is bad um, or that it can have bad effects, we're still left with the argument and and the folks on the left would have to respond to it, that the Marxist critique is not the best response to neoliberalism because the revival of Marxism and the inclusion of Marxist concepts or re-inclusion of Marxist concepts into debate would be dangerous. So Brett, St- I'm, it's a circular way of getting to what I want to talk about right now, which is the the Brett Steve- recent Brett Stevens article. So uh, Stevens in the New York Times in his recent column argued um, uh, basically that that the re-inclusion of Marxist concepts would be dangerous in debate. So of scholars, perhaps like yourself, um, and you can let us know if this is true, Stevens writes this, quote, but they, meaning scholars on the left, uh, they will insist that there is an essential difference between Nazism and communism, between race hatred and class hatred, Buchenwald and the Gulag, um, uh, and that this essential difference morally favors the latter. They will attempt to dissociate communist theory from practice in an effort to acquit the former they will balance acknowledgement of the repression of mass murder of communism with references to its real advances and achievements. They will say that true communism has never been tried, end quote. So in short, Stevens seems to, be, seems to think rather that Marxist ideas, when applied, will inevitably lead to tyranny. Um, and, and that um, it is thus morally reprehensible and intellectually foolish for scholars and critics to try to argue otherwise. How would you respond to the Stephen? How would you respond? Excuse me to the Stevens argument generally. Yeah. So, really, the best response um, that I read, and I know you read, was the Jed Purdy piece in Jacobin, which was a direct response, and calling Stevens a sort of a new form of red baiting, even though he's really just mimicking the forms of red baiting from you know the Cold War, um, because. The, the logic here is really absurd because what Stevens really wants to get around to is to argue that the rhetorical attacks on financial behavior on Wall Street, you know, by, by in attacks on extreme wealth inequality and greed um, are going to lead us inevitably on the path to the gulag, which is absurd to the greatest degree. Um, attacks on 
class inequality and wealth, there's a long history of this in the United States. And as Purdy, I think, points out too, it's led to things like regulation. It could potentially lead to universal health care, um, things that many of us, and not just on the left, would sort of think about as being an enhancement of American democracy, not its um, not its degradation, and certainly not a turn to authoritarianism. And so, you know, the key is to, I think this is one of the reasons why there's been a sort of reemergence of socialist-leaning people in the United States and a reemergence of a turn to Marxism is that, you know, we're 26, 27 years since the end of the Cold War, and that type of sort of absurd logic just doesn't resonate with as many people as it used to. Yeah, sure, it resonates on the pages of the Wall Street Journal editorial. Um, it's going to resonate with a few New York Times readers, perhaps, but most people I know and most people, uh, most of the young people who are getting sort of politically energized on the left, that's just not going to resonate with them, which is not to say that we shouldn't be reading the history of communism and understanding the failures of communism um, in wide swaths of the world, but it's also to sort of recognize that reading Karl Marx and reading Marxist theory is not um, a sort of like naive naive conception about what can happen if we were to attempt to apply some of these ideas to politics. So before we proceed, because I have more questions about this topic, I'm, I'm hoping just to get a sense of your own past interest in Marxism um, and in the left generally, um, because you did bring up um, the Cold War. And I guess I'm wondering... Um, because I know you're known, you, you, I, I, I'll put it this way, I, I know you're known by some of your friends among, um, uh, on the left, but also just your friends in the world of intellectual history. You're sort of known as, a, as someone on the left who's able to talk with people in the center, say, or with liberals. You've done this on David Sahat's podcast um, a couple times, I think, and you're also doing your own podcast now with your friend Ray Habersky, um, in which you do sort of represent uh, 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 the left, and he might represent a kind of liberalism. Um, so I, I, you surely are practiced in defending your position on the left from the liberal critique and perhaps even the conservative critique. And I guess I'm wondering, um, when you first became interested in Marxism and when you first started to think of yourself as a Marxist? Yeah, so I was young. I grew up in a liberal household. Both my parents were teachers, um, very pro-union, pro-democratic party. Um, I would say maybe McGovernite Democrats. You know, they were on the left side of the Democratic Party, and that this is the sensibilities with which I grew up. It wasn't a, an extremely political family. Um, we lived in suburban America, and most of our lives were not sort of subsumed by politics, but that's the sort of sensibility I grew up with. Um, and this led me to you know, I was pretty curious and I read a lot. And so I, by the time I was like 18, 19, I started reading a whole host of sort of left-wing writers, um, including the likes of Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky, who I think 
are the two the two American thinkers who are definitely the most common gateway drugs to the left, um, and should be thought of that in, thought in such terms. Um, by the time I was maybe twenty one or twenty two, I started reading Marx and sort of got hooked and had a Marxist reading group going throughout graduate school that I organized. We'd um, read on top of our usual studies and meet at coffee shops like once a month. And I did this for many years in graduate school. And, um, you know, I was always, I guess, politically on the left and as, as a sort of um, popular front type, you know. And that's why I've, uh, you know, most of my friends, I would say, are liberal and I I don't sort of demonize liberalism to the extent that many on the left probably do. I think that if we're, especially in the United States, ever going to achieve any type of like real power, social democratic power, it's going to require liberals and leftists working together. Um, but in my uh, my sort of sense of history, I lean pretty Marxist, although I would argue that a lot of my scholarship, but that isn't like sort of like readily apparent or it's not explicit it's not sort of dogmatic in that sense um but yeah it's just it's been with me for a long time and i i noticed as a scholar that the thing i was most interested in were ideas and intellectual history and it's not it's not there's no sort of like neat or easy correlation between studying ideas and being a marxist especially because the materialist conception of history um one might think leads to sort of the downplay of ideas, but ideas to me are the most interesting things to study. Um, and so, you know, maybe that makes me a bit of a contradiction and, and it means that when I'm at the conference for the society for the U S intellectual history, I'm one of the only people around who are going to say, yes, I'm a Marxist. Uh, most people there would consider themselves more in the liberal or especially the pragmatic tradition, uh, a tradition that seems seemingly lends itself better to intellectual history. That's uh, well, and that's that's interesting because I, you know, I'm, I'm as as a graduate student myself, and I, <clears throat> I hear a lot because of course I'm. I mean, I'm a grad student at NYU. I know a lot of people who are um, very firmly on the left and would very unashamedly call themselves um, Marxist, obviously. And I know a lot of people in the DSA and things like this. Um, and the arguments I hear against them often are, well, they're just, they're, they're, they're naive because we're, we're so far away from the cold war now. Um, this is the kind of the Stevens argument that we've somehow forgotten the dangers of Marxism. But of course you sort of cut your teeth on the left at a time where, where American rhetoric was very much based in the, in the tradition, or rather in the terminology of the Cold War. So I'm guess I'm, I guess I'm wondering, from your perspective on the left, where you were surely, though some of your arguments may have been palatable to people in the academy, um, they probably weren't very palatable in the realm of broad cultural commentating. You wouldn't have seen it in, in the pages of the New York Times. I'm, I'm wondering. So I guess I'm wondering, what, how has, do you think that the left right now um, is experiencing a moment, perhaps in the same way that folks on, on the right and paleoconservatives are, are experiencing on their side? Um, it is experiencing a new moment now where it could actually grab some portion of the center. I like to think so. Um, I hope so. Um, when I'm 
thinking optimistically about all of, you know, most of my students were very much like me. Uh, most of my students right now, I teach at Illinois State University, are sub, uh, Chicago suburbanites. Um, they are increasingly becoming sort of shifting to the left. And, and I've taught now at ISU for 10 years, and this was decidedly not the case when I began there. Um, so when I think optimistically about these types of developments, I think that, yes, I think I feel like the, the left is potentially on the verge of capturing a greater sort of share of electoral of the electorate in terms of um, them, uh, people, more and more Americans sharing left values. Um, but, you know, so much of it is sort of contingent on so many things um, and it could go the other way as well. Um, but but when I am thinking optimistically, I tend to think, well, maybe uh, we're sort of in our – maybe the Bernie Sanders campaign was the Goldwater moment for the left. Um, and, and, you know, you see a lot of sort of local or, organizing, not just by DSA, but a lot of sort of Bernie-type Democrats have – gone local and are trying to sort of organize in their local Democratic Party and win local elections. And this is precisely what the right did in the sort of aftermath of Goldwater. You know, there's some major, 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 major differences. Uh, the right always had a lot of money in the way that um, the left can never have because our interests don't match up very well with the big money. Um, but I like to think that maybe, uh, majorities will win out over big money. And this is me thinking optimistically and you caught me, a, I guess, on a good day because I don't <laughs> always think, don't always think so optimistically. That's interesting. What do you think determines whether, is it just, you know, which side of the bed you woke up in the morning or what, in all seriousness, which, um, what, what makes you feel more optimistic right now? Just uh, other than just the energy of the, of the students. And do you think, I guess my question is, do you think that the energy of the students is sustainable or will they, as the argument so often goes, will they, once they get out of college, um, and face the real world and the, the brute realities, um, will they, um, become less inclined to organize, uh, and unionize? Yeah. So, um, Today's good mood. Well, I've been in a better sort of more optimistic mood lately, but this is entirely sort of personal because I, um, I've quit tuning into uh, the ongoing left liberal social media sort of moral panic. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, and it just makes me feel better about the world, and I, then it makes me think more about my students um, and what they're doing rather than these sort of like high profile social media figures who are just duking it out day in day out in very vicious ways. And that's not a good window onto the left I've decided. And so I've become more optimistic as I pay less and less attention to that. Um, but I, so I think most political science models show that when people, once people form their political attitudes and ideologies in sort of the late teens, early twenties, most people stick to that. They don't sort of waver. The, the old, I think it was a Winston Churchill sort of famous saying about, you know, if you're a young person and you're conservative, you have no compassion. But if you're an old person and you're liberal, you have no common sense. I right. Don't, I've heard that. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, get, I'm kidding it wrong. I'm paraphrasing. But it's, it's actually not true. Most people, once they form their sort of 
bedrock political ideas in their early 20s, early to mid 20s, um, they pretty much stay there. And so I think since most young people uh, in college in that sort of range are forming left-wing ideas right now, it's I don't I don't think that's going to change. Now, how that's going to manifest is another question. I think it's um, because of neoliberalism, it's incredibly difficult to sort of find a way to organize to leverage the growing number of people around the left, leverage that into political power. Well, one way I'm 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 interested in what you said or how you began your your um your point about uh about feeling optimism and how your optimism is based on your having left social media just for the moment. I mean, that's yeah. interesting because in fact it does seem and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it does seem that a lot of people um if I don't I I'm, I hesitate to make general points like this, but I think um a lot of young people say, or people my age, or even people just just um, getting on getting on Twitter, getting on Facebook, um, have in fact found a way to the left, as well as perhaps to the right, by precisely the intensity of debate on social media, um, and in fact, it's, it's given the left and the popularization of the left a lot of lifeblood. I mean something like Chapo Trap House wouldn't exist if it weren't for Twitter. Um, so I guess I'm wondering um, what you see as wrong right now with um, debates on social media, particularly on the left. They have, they do seem to have, you know, I have a Twitter. They do seem to have gotten quite ferocious um, mm-hmm. and frustrating, and it is difficult to um, manage to, uh, actually get any ideas of substance um, in there. It's usually um, just a kind of ferocious personal attack. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm still on Twitter, but I've learned how to navigate it in such a way that I don't get, I don't get too caught up in what seemed to me endless, pointless debates. But I, I do think you're right. So I think social media has a sort of like, <laughs> hate to use the word, but a dialectical effect in the sense that I think you're right. A lot of people have made their way to the left through social media. You know, people sort of otherwise isolated have recognized that they're not alone in their views of the world. And they've sort of sharpened or honed their their ideas through debate on social media, without a doubt, um, that is true. But I, I think it's, it's maybe it's just me, but I think a lot of other people who have been on the left for a long time, and it's sort of like this. Oh, now all these people are sort of moving into the left, <laughs> and yet the second they get there, there's this just like massive derailment in terms of debates there I, I i mean i think it's sort of a moral panic like ah things are so bad and we're just like eating each other what's <laughs> but it's, what's but the, it's just the social media thing you know I, I i just think um the way people attack each other cannot lead to solidarity i mean people on the left attack others on the left um and I'm not claiming one side. I don't. There's no like sides here for me. It just it it seems like. So like I don't know. And I I sort of stayed distant from this. But just as Democratic Socialists for America DSA really 
picks up momentum with all of the new members. There were a bunch of these online fights about particular members that to me just seemed utterly destructive in the sense that if you have these brand new members who are just discovering DSA and they're discovering it through Facebook and they think that the entire sort of premise of DSA is to sort of go into destructive rhetorical mode on Facebook, um, then I, then I think that's going to turn a lot of people off who otherwise would have been sort of excited new, new converts. That's interesting. I mean, it is, um, uh, it's it's almost a cliche at this point to make fun of intra-left debate because it, it is true. It, it does seem to be true, at least, that it sometimes can get so ferocious that it seems like, if you're looking at it from the outside, it seems like the left is sort of eating itself alive and that it it always prevents the development or achievement of solidarity because of the endless arguments. What are some of the arguments on social media going right now? What's, what's the, what's the, are they truly contentless? Is it truly just, um, just, uh, um, new members fighting over who shouldn't be in or who should be in? Is there any substance in it? Um, and uh, how, how, how is the problem solved in your view? So, yeah, I think there's some substance. Um, and that's fine. I mean, there should be substanti- substantive debates. Um, but I think it's the sort of mode of attack that seems very sectarian and that the left has a long history of. I mean, and that's maybe that's one of the reasons why I um, sort of shrink in the face of these things, because I've studied in great depth the sectarian left of the 1930s and then the 1960s. And maybe the left was never has never really been in a position to achieve the type of power that I would want it to in the United States. But it certainly hasn't done itself any favors with its sort of intersectarian, interleft sectarianism, which really did sort of eat at the left in the 1930s in massive ways. And then again in the 1960s to some degree. And, you know, so some of the debates I've seen, for example, um, and these are old debates that sort of rose up in the 1960s for sure. And that is like, you know, how to what degree should a leftist group that is trying to achieve sort of like broad, a, a broad majority across the working class, to what degree should it sort of zone in on and emphasize issues about race and gender. Obviously, racial and gender equality are hugely important, and the left has always considered these these goals hugely important. Um, but should it should they be the focus to the detriment of trying to win over people mm. who might otherwise, you know, who are just turned off by what I would call the sort of like hypersensitive sort of political correctness. And, you know, I hate, I hate to use that term cause it's, that's like the most loaded term out there. And certainly, um, conservatives know as much and have used it to their advantage. No, nobody more than Trump, but there is a sense that you, you can't say certain things without being attacked as some sort of traitor to the cause. And that does not make, um, for a healthy situation. How do you think the left is going to in the coming I, – I know you can't possibly predict, but how – I'll rephrase. How would you like to see the left 
um, respond productively um, and perhaps assimilate in the right ways the um, the terms and the spirit behind what's called identity politics. And I ask that because, of course, um, some people on the left would argue uh, that on the hard left would argue that identity politics is a distracting form of particularism, that it's a way, as I think you're kind of suggesting, a way for the left to d- divide itself, perhaps unnecessarily. But then, but then it, that's not just a critique made by people on the left. I mean, someone in the center or a liberal yeah. who is excoriated a lot by folks on the left, like Corey Rabin, um, I'm thinking here of, uh, of Mark Leela, who wrote that Times piece a while back, The End of Identity Liberalism, that was um, um, really uh, attacked by people on the left. Um, but it makes some of the arguments that it seems like you're perhaps gesturing toward. And then, of course, on the right, um, you have the, the Fox News types who identify the, the, um, the ways in which identity politics could be um, in its um, most basic forms um, um, made into a farce. So there are, are all, people, are, people are critiquing identity politics, but then, of course, there are the people who would defend it. Um, how will the left, do you think, or how should the left um, take up the right bits of identity politics and how should it sort of incorporate it or not incorporate it? Yeah, really good and tough question. Um, I, sort of on the, the inner left, intra-left debates about identity politics, I, I, I've tried to find a sort of historical middle ground. Um, in my last book, which is a history of the culture wars, um, I really tried to historicize the rise of identity politics as emerging from the 1960s social movements, um, which are, which I think were, you know, positive and inevitable and in part the result of not only sort of like this normative conception of America, which did not allow for these different sort of, identities that were associated with racial minorities, um, feminism, uh, gay rights, not only that, but that it, that the left was not always as good as it could have been at incorporating these identities into its larger vision of, you know, a social democratic America. So I think it was, um, it was a, an inevitable but also a good movement that emerged out of the 1960s. But the logic of identity politics can only go so far because um, in order to, you know, I mean, for example, neoliberalism works very well with multiculturalism or identity politics in the sense that the logic of the market sort of in, helps inform identity politics in that it's a, it's a sort of like private, non-public um, thing. It doesn't build up the type of sort of class solidarity that I would argue is necessary to taking on the 1% or the ruling class. And, you know, there's me using my Marxist terminology again, or at least my sort of Marxist conception of the world. Um, you know, it's identity politics. So, I mean, really the sort of uh, Trump came to power 
by flipping identity politics on its head and demonstrating that there could be a white identity politics as well. And we've seen this for a long time as a sort of, um, as the alternative to the social movement, racial minority, feminist identity politics that emerged out of the 1960s and that, you know, conservatives, white conservatives has figured out that the best sort of way to organize against that is to have their own identity politics. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's all of our little platoons are not going to be able to create the type of solidarity necessary to take on power where it really exists. And so, but you know, the solution on the left is, well, you have to be, um, you have to be open to people's claims about, you know, discrimination both within the left and the larger American society because it's real. So you have to take people's sort of identity-based um, claims very seriously and empathetically. Um, but, you know, I think it has to go both ways in the sense that um, people making identity-based claims I think should sort of take stock of, you know, how well that's working and what they ultimately want to achieve and how best to achieve that. And so I think, I mean, this is something we all have to do. Well, it's true. And uh, you, you, you touched on this argument in your, um, or made this argument rather in your piece in Raritan called Culture Wars and the Humanities in the Age of Neoliberalism, which does, it takes up the things that you just described. It also addresses um, parts of the argument you make in your book on the culture wars titled a war for the soul of America, which you also just referenced. Um, that title, I'll, I'll remind listeners, um, because of course I've had you on the podcast before and you, we talked about your book. That title is a reference to a speech, I believe um, it was Patrick Buchanan gave. Yes. Right? Okay. Um, yes. At, at the 1992 um, Republican convention, uh, it's a famous speech and it's, it's definitely sort of like gives the outlines of the culture wars and in some ways identity politics, I would argue as well. Well, now the, the, the I, I, I saw, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I saw that you have a new edition of the book coming out soon. Um, and, and with a new conclusion, is that correct? Yes. Hopefully, uh, it'll be out, um, 2000, late 2018, early 2019. It's, um, the same book, but with a brand new conclusion that I'm currently work, working on the, uh, the press. I wrote the first conclusion in 2014 and made some bold claims about <laughs> where the, about the culture wars coming to fizzling out. And obviously I was dead wrong. Um, but, but, uh, you know, that's okay. I get a chance to, to rewrite history. So I'm going to write a new conclusion that is going to take into account all the craziness that has happened over the past three years, three or four years. Well, can you just, I know we're running out of time here, Andrew, but I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about the difference between your old conclusion and your new one. I remember when, when you came on the podcast, and I've also heard you talk about your book um, in debates and in, in, in lectures. Um, uh, your original argument was, as you suggest, that the culture wars had not just that the culture wars were fizzling out, but that the left and the identity political left had had made a variety of gains and were in the process of consolidating those gains, essentially. And um, it does seem like um, the say the mean the mainstream media 
Um, not counting, of course, Fox News, which I don't, I don't know why Fox News doesn't get lumped in with the mainstream media with all of its viewers. But in any <laughs> event, um, the mainstream media did um, incorporate perhaps some of the gains made by the left in the university. Um, yes. It does seem like, though, as you suggest, the rise of Trump and Trumpism is a hardcore repudiation of those of those left successes and victories um, and a response to them. Is that what your new conclusion will be taking up? And how is, how is your argument forming? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's complex, you know, history is tough enough when it's in the past, but when you're trying to sort of write about the present, whew. Um, but I, so yeah, obviously the emergence of Trump and Trumpism and Trump space is, a repudiation or a refutation of um, the multicultural left that I argued in the book became sort of the mainstream sensibility as as um, it manifested in a number of institutions, including the academy and the media and um, you know other sort of cultural institutions. I still think that's the case, but there was this sort of like forgotten 25 or so percent of white America that was not sort of willing to let that be, be the final word, so to speak. Um, and so Trump represents this, the, the antithesis of this sort of multi left, left liberal multicultural sensibility. Um, but you know, I, I don't think that this is the defeat of the left in the culture wars either. Um, and I think a lot of it speaks to the, um, the, the way in which the American political system, particularly at this moment, um, is not very democratic. Um, and so the culture might say one thing for the majority and yet the political system points in another direction and empowers the minority, um, those who support Trump. So, you know, we're in a weird position. Obviously, the culture wars are not dead. That was me being hyperbolic, and I knew as much, but I thought maybe I was on to something, and I was wrong about that. So I'm just trying to make sense of all of this. It's in, it's in the process. That was Andrew Hartman. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Director of the Hamilton Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Hamilton Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hamilton's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference in the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howenstancenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.